0: visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you weren't with us last week, we started, as you may have guessed, a new series that's going to take us up to Palm Sunday, a series on the Ten Commandments. And last week we looked at the First Commandment and what we said really about the Ten Commandments in general, and I'll try to remind us of this over and over again, because I think that when we we first hear a study of the Ten Commandments, it may kind of sound like, that sounds a little boring, you know, and I'm not sure how applicable that might be to my life right now. But we also, last week, we heard Jesus say these words that he came to fulfill these laws, but he did not come to abolish them. And that until heaven and earth pass away, that that there's not going to be a single stroke of the pen that falls away from this law. And so those of us who know Jesus have to ask this question, then what role does this law, these commandments play now in my life? If Jesus has fulfilled these things for me, then what do they do? And so we looked at three things last week that the law always does for us. And they all started with M so that we could remember them, that it acts as a map, that the law really shows us, it shows us a picture of God's heart. That God is the one, he's the the maker and the designer and the creator of all things. And so when we look at his law, he shows us the way that the world is supposed to work, the way that it's designed to be. And so it shows us a picture of what freedom looks like and what goodness looks like and what your life working at its best looks like. But when we look into the law, it also acts like a mirror because when we see it and we really ask ourselves questions about what it's asking of us, what all of us find continually is that there are levels of ways in which we have broken God's law that are deeper than we would have ever imagined That the, the law acts like this mirror And as we look into it, it shows us ourselves It shows where the cracks are It shows where the brokenness is It shows us where the sin is But then finally, it doesn't leave us there And what we said last week is that um, Just like looking into a mirror this morning Which I hope you did um, Before coming to church You didn't use the mirror to fix your hair Or to help you put on your clothes. The mirror just showed you that you needed to do those things. That something had to be done. Something had to be done about the way you looked this morning. That's what the mirror showed you. But you didn't use the mirror in order to fix yourself. And so the law also acts as a mentor. And we said even as the law might drive you to despair, it does so so that you might find your hope in the only place where hope is to be found. And that is in Jesus the one who completely fulfills the law on our behalf. And so over and over again, as we look at these commandments, we're we're gonna find, if if we don't say those things explicitly, what you'll see is the law continually does those things for us. And it's the reason that, I've named this series 10 reasons that we need Jesus. Um, That in every one of these, what we start to find is our need is greater and it is deeper than we first thought. And Jesus's love and his grace is far beyond what we first thought. So don't be afraid of being exposed by the law. What it shows you is that grace is better than you first thought. So before we look at the second commandment uh, this morning, let me, let me pray and ask for God's help. Father, we give you praise this morning that your words are, are true. And Father, we thank you that you give them to us. What an amazing thing that you are a God who speaks to us, that you have preserved words for us so that we might um, this morning even come to read these out loud and to fathom the fact that you are the one who is speaking to us, that you're a God who is not silent, that you reveal yourself to us. And Father, even as we see this morning, maybe the ways in which we have not listened to who you say you are, but instead have tried to reform you in a different way. I pray that even as you may bring us to conviction, that you would bring us to hope in Jesus. And that we might find ourselves this morning resting more deeply in him than we did when we came in. And we ask this in his name. Amen. I want you to, I want to start by imagining a scenario together. And I want you to imagine, some of you don't have to imagine this because you've done it before, but I want, to ima- I want you to imagine with me that you're getting married, okay? And so if you're already married, just kind of wipe that out of your mind for a second and imagine this is the first time and that you're getting married, but, and, you know, there's all this anticipation, there's all this thought, and there's all this planning that is, that is happening, but there's a, there's a difference in this particular marriage, and the difference is this, that it's arranged, You didn't choose this person. You live in a culture where maybe this is fairly typical, and um, there's people who have found just the right spouse for you, and they send you an email, and this email has a description of your future spouse. It tells about their character, and it tells a little bit about their biography. It tells a little bit about their life, and you pour over this email. And in the next, like, few days, in the next few weeks that's leading up uh, to this wedding, um, you've read this description of this person so many times, and it's still just you want more, and you want to see this person. And so you've got a little bit of artistic ability, so you sit down one day at your desk... And you began to sketch out what you think this person that you're about to marry is going to look like. And you take the description into consideration, and you take um, their character into consideration, and you begin to draw a picture. And over the next few weeks, you look at this picture again and again, and you try to visualize what this person is going to be like. But you also find yourself beginning to tweak the picture. And you tweak the picture not necessarily based on the description that you've been given in the email, but you realize that you're tweaking the picture based along the lines of really what you want the person to look like. And so the day comes when you're getting married. And you see the person for the first time. And you get married and you begin to live, you you live in the same house, you share the same bed, you get to know this person as a real person live human being and not just a description and and not just this picture that you've created and you go back one day and you look at that picture and you go i cannot believe how inaccurate this was and i also can't believe what a horrible artist i am right it's just so different than this living breathing person that that i'm now married to but then there's something else that happens as you look at that picture you start to remember some of the things that you wanted this person to be like. And there's this part of you that actually becomes sad because you actually dreamed of this person being these particular ways, and you realize the reality of this person is actually far different. And so one day, you kind of take the picture to that spouse, and you go, you know, I drew this of you before I ever saw you. And the way I did your hair, I kind of like it better than the way your hair actually is. And there's some thoughts about, I had about, you know, I kind of figured your sense of humor would be a little bit different. And the more that I've thought about these things and has anticipated being with you, um, I really realized that there's all these things I wanted um, to be different than they really are. And you, you listen to that illustrated, you think about that scenario, and you realize how silly it is and how absurd it is. Because any of us who have ever been in any relationship know that you have to take the person as they are. You cannot just imagine them to be whatever you want them to be and expect them to morph magically into your expectations. Any of us have been in a relationship, now we've failed at doing this over and over again because we try to change people all the time. But what we know is true is that I can't just wish this person to be something that they're not. I have to take them as they actually are. And if you can understand that concept, then you can understand the second commandment. Because the first commandment, God comes to us and he says this, no other gods before me. And remember, we said he tells us that in love because to worship something that is not actually God will actually enslave you. And will demand more of you and become a taskmaster. And the more you bow down to these other things, these other false gods, the more that they will actually make you miserable. And finally, as we said last week, they will eat you alive. And so God says, no other gods before me. And so it sounds like in the second commandment that he's just repeating himself. But he's not. There's a distinction. The first commandment is about what God we worship, that we worship the right God. The second commandment is about worshiping the right God in the right way. And so what we're seeing, what we'll see is that basically God is saying this, you cannot imagine me or image me any way that you simply like. You have to relate to me only as I have revealed myself to be. You can't just imagine me or make an image of me in any way that you like. Even if you're trying to be faithful to what you think my character is, you have to receive me as I have revealed myself. And you remember as we start thinking about this this morning, that these are not rules simply that you follow in order to earn God's favor. That God brought his people out of bondage and out of slavery And out of misery. And then he gave them these laws. Because he is saying, I love you. And you have my favor. And this is what you need to know about what it is to relate to me. So that you don't fall back into bondage. And you don't fall back into slavery. And so this morning, I want to just talk about two things. And we'll spend a lot more time on the first than the second. The first thing is this. Is... Why does God say, then, no images? Why does he say no images? And then secondly, then how do we worship God in the right way? How do we worship the right God in the right way? Why, why no images? And let me just give, like, a quick answer, and then we'll unravel it. And the quick answer is this, is that images always distort Images always distort, either by what they present to your eyes or by what they leave out. So images distort by maybe concealing part of the truth. And when part of the truth of something is concealed, then you don't have the complete picture of what something is. They cannot, in other words, what God is saying to his people is a simple image of me cannot capture everything that I am. God is the only one, he's the only being in the universe who can say, I am who I am. That's what his name is. That's who he says he is. I am who I am. He is the only being who completely and utterly defines himself. All of our other identities are derivative. His is not. And so he says, you cannot capture I am who I am, Yahweh, in a single image. And we like we understand we understand this even if we don't think about it a whole lot. Because we live in an image saturated culture. We look at images more like we look at images that are not just in front of us. I don't know if you ever stop and think about this. For most of the world, the most of history, the images they looked at were only things that were actually happening in front of them, that most of the images that we look at on a daily basis or on a screen that are not happening right in front of us, we look at images consistently all day, every day. And so you think about something like Instagram. I'm not going to bash it. I'm just going to tell you what it does. I think Instagram only tells you part of the story. And you know this, and this is why you select certain pictures to go on Instagram or Facebook or whatever form of social media you might consume. You pick them carefully, right? Because you want that image to create a sensation for the person that is viewing it so that they will think about you in a certain way. Now, a lot of that's done like in a subconscious kind of unconscious manner, but that's just the way that we work. And so you don't scroll through, say, Instagram and see a lot of pictures of, of spouses fighting, right? It'd be kind of amazing, wouldn't it? Let's get a selfie real quick in the heat of the moment <laughs> and post it. You don't see a lot of breakdowns and, and breakups. You don't see the incredibly mundane day-in, day-out task of unloading and loading the dishwasher, are mopping the kitchen floor, are changing diapers. It's pretty rare to see somebody take a picture of themselves crying in their room because they are so stressed and so tired that they're not sure how they're going to make it through the week. But some of you were there this week at that moment. We don't see a lot of pictures of... Somebody sitting in a dark room holding a video game controller with a half-eaten bag of Doritos on their lap. Those are kind of the things we don't really want other people to see about us. And And you see what I mean. Pictures and images, they often distort the truth about the objects they portray, or at least they conceal part of the truth. And you might want to think about it maybe this way, maybe flip it around. Think about if there was somebody who had a picture of you and it was a picture that you hated. Uh, Maybe it was you in some embarrassing situation, or maybe it was just you when you really thought you looked really, really bad in this picture, and they post a picture of you that thousands and thousands and thousands of people see. That this picture of you essentially goes viral, and your name is tagged to this picture so that when you go out into the world, um, the people who know your name only know you by this picture. How would you feel? I mean, you'd feel furious, right? You'd feel angry and you would feel like, I want you, I want people to not know me by this one bad moment or maybe this one distorted image. I want them to know that I'm a whole human being. I have a range of emotions, that I'm not just what this one image says that I am. So we can understand the concept. So what is God telling us about what we should do and shouldn't do? Well, I want to talk about two things that basically he's saying that we should not do. And the first one is that we shouldn't actually create images of him to worship. It's simply this, don't make physical, I mean he was very clear about it, don't make physical representations of me in order to bow down to them and worship them. So when you see the Israelites um, quickly breaking this and making a golden calf, if you remember that scene, they make a golden calf and they begin to worship this golden calf and God is not happy about the fact that they're worshiping the golden calf. I think a lot of times what we think is that they are now worshiping another God or a pagan God, but no, in fact, they actually form a golden calf because they want something that they can look at that's a representation of God in order to bow down to and worship. And why would that upset God? Because a golden calf, like it might have some semblance of some of his characteristics, maybe his purity or his strength. But it cannot capture all of his attributes. It ends up telling a lie about who he is. You cannot, human hands cannot create an accurate depiction of me, is what God is saying. And so we might read this and we go, okay, the second commandment, doing pretty good, right? Have not, like, created an idol That I bow down to that represents God. Probably no one in this room has has done that thing. So the second thing is where the commandments always take us deeper than that. And the second the second part of this is that we cannot simply imagine God any way we would like Him to be. Another way to say that is we cannot create God in our image. We can't just say, and maybe you've, maybe you've said this before, or you've heard it said, I feel like it's something that I hear a lot, that you hear people say, you know, I just, I really like to think of God as being like blank. Or if they look into the world and they see something happening that they don't like, they, they might say, somebody might say, I just can't imagine a God who would let blank happen. Or I refuse To believe in a God who is like blank. And if those are things that are contradicting what God himself has said he is or what he is like, then what's happening in those situations is that we're saying, I think that my conception of what God should be is greater than the God who has actually revealed himself as he actually is. He's not fitting into my perception of what God should be like. And you see, the danger of the Second Commandment is that we do this all the time. I was thinking of a way to illustrate this, and I was thinking about a a movie that I saw a few years ago. Brilliant film. You know, there's movies and then there's films, right? Films are for serious people. And this was a, a film of the highest order. It's called Talladega Nights. I don't know if you, if you happen to catch that film. It only had a limited release. It's small, kind of arty, you know, studios. Uh, this is my second week in a row to have a Will Ferrell illustration. And if I can keep this going through all ten commandments I want to raise. But there's a famous scene in Talladega Nights where Will Ferrell plays a NASCAR driver named Ricky Bobby. And he this this kind of infamous scene is they're sitting he he and his wife and some friends are sitting around the dinner table and Ricky Bobby says this prayer to bless the food and I'm going to read some of it to you. He says, "Dear Lord, baby Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell." And he goes on to pray that Jesus would use what he called his baby Jesus powers to heal his father-in-law. And finally it gets to the point that his wife interrupts him and she says, Honey, you know that Jesus grew up, right? You know that you don't have to always call him a baby. And Ricky Bobby responds, Look, I like Christmas Jesus the best. And I'm the one that's saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or bearded Jesus or teenage Jesus or whoever you want. And his, his like sidekick chimes in and he says, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says I want to be formal, but I also like to party. I like to party and I like my Jesus to party. It's an absurd illustration of exactly what we do. I want, him to fit, I want him to fit into a conception that I am comfortable with, something that makes me feel okay. The, the bottom line is I want to control him. And we like to think of God in certain ways because it's just comforting to us. Or we like to think of him as being especially fond of certain things because those are the things that we're fond of as well. But in his commandment, God is saying this, you cannot just imagine me in any way that you want. You cannot manipulate me into the image that suits you best because I am who I am. God will not conform to our images. And so what are we, what are, we could go on and on about ways that we do this, but let me just, let me just pick on one way for a minute. And I think, it's, I think it's a popular way, even if we don't want to admit this out loud, it's a popular way that we reimagine God, not according to the way that he has revealed himself to be. And it's what I would call the, I always want you to be happy, God. It's sort of the God who um, is the benevolent grandfather and this distortion of God is, is really pleased when you were so happy because you have all the things in your life that you have wanted for so long. That you have the right friends and the right bill of health and the right wife or, or spouse or, or girlfriend or boyfriend. That you have the children kind of being formed in the way that you want them To be formed, you live in a city that you love, that has the right restaurant options, like all the things that you want. The problem with this is this, is that may not be what the actual God of the universe has in store for you that your life might actually look really different, that you might end up living in situations that you never dreamed of living in, that your spouse may end up um, hurting you in ways that you never could imagine, that your children might die before you do. Those are all realities of things that we experience in this life, and so what comes of our conception of this God that always wants us to simply be happy? You see, our image of God God is saying, has to be regulated by what God says about himself. And so the problem with, I always want you to be happy, God, is that Jesus said that when we are united with him, we are united with him in his glory, but we're also united with him in his suffering. So if we distort the image of God into one who is here simply to serve us in the way that we want to be served, what we'll find is that we will become, at some point in our life, incredibly angry and we'll say, where is this anger coming from? We'll become incredibly distraught. We'll start to question what it is we really believe. Because the God that we thought we were worshiping is not the real God at all. And he's constantly disappointing our expectations of who we thought he would be. And maybe we could think about it this way too. If you're sitting here this morning and what you find is that there's little conviction of sin in your life. That you, you know, you can hardly think of the last time you really repented over your sin. It might be because you fashioned a God in your own image. And this God only gets upset at the same things that you get upset at, which means what you spend most of your time doing is rallying God to get angry at the people doing the things that you don't want them to do all around you. But rarely do you find yourself convicted over your own sin. It might, that might look like this. Maybe you're, you're most upset right now. I'm just pulling this example out of you know, thin air. You're most upset, upset right now by what you see your political opponents doing. And it starts to just grate at you and infuriate you, and you're reading the news constantly because you were just sitting there thinking, how can these people be so stupid over and over and over again and it infuriates you and maybe you fashioned a God who holds the exact same political persuasions of you as you do and it's so easy for us to take the things that we might be most passionate about and simply refuse to believe that God does not feel the exact same way that I feel which leads to the question what informs your view of God? What informs your view of God? What tells you about who God actually is and about his nature and character? And here's the thing, and I'll try to be as blunt as possible. God has spoken to us, and he's done it most clearly in his word. And if we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, are not People who take his word seriously and actually study his word and actually listen to his word Then I can promise that we are our conception of who god is Gradually what you'll see is that it's going to be shaped and formed by the distortions we see around us As well as the distortions in our own heart a lot more than what his word actually says And we're going to look up one day and we're going to open the bible and we're going to say I don't recognize this god I don't like this god And I'm going to cut little things out of my Bible to make this God fit the God that I actually want. If you want to know God, the true God, if you want to worship the true God, then you have to take him at his word. And here's the thing. When you do, he will contradict you. He will contradict your image of who you think he should be because he's God. I think a popular image of God right now is a God who's simply devoid of any sort of standard of holiness, uh, that, that it's a God who simply the thought uh, that God could ever be set upset with us for anything that we could ever possibly do is anathema, that we can't think that way of God, and he should never be upset about anything, and a, a God who conforms to every wave of every new cultural norm that you might be passionate about, this is not the God of the Bible, it's a God of your imagination. And he will never lead you to repentance. And if he never leads you to repentance, he will never lead you to freedom in life. Maybe at the other end of the spectrum, and I I imagine this is maybe more true for a lot of us in this room, that we have fashioned a God who is actually, even though we give lip service to it, who's actually devoid of grace. That we fashioned a God who, even though we think he can be gracious to other people, the way that we actually live our life is that we see him as the harsh taskmaster that we can never actually go to, that we cannot conceive that he would actually be a God who delights in us and who loves us and who forgives us. And when we conceive God in that way, even though he has revealed himself himself, in us to us in dramatically different ways what it causes us to do is simply to go and run after other gods in the first place i'll find a god who is maybe not quite so demanding but that god is a god of our imagination he's not the god of the bible and so some of us maybe are here this morning and maybe at this time in our life or maybe um, we'll experience this in the near future that we're going down a path Where slowly but surely we are distancing ourselves from the one true, like we're distancing ourselves from the idea of God altogether. I mean, in a room this size, there's some of us that are in that realm that we're kind of thinking, I I don't really know about this. And I just want you to consider this morning that maybe the God that you're close to rejecting or have rejected is not the true God at all. Maybe it's the God that you've made up, maybe it's the God that you've reimagined. In your own image, and because of all this and this commandment, God says this, and these these words are strange to our ears. But He says, "I am a jealous God," and maybe that alone shatters your conception of how you actually think about God. That God says, "I am jealous," and we might stand back and think, "Well, for God to be jealous is a bad thing. So God to be jealous—that's not a God that I want." And what God is saying is this, I created you for me. I created you and I know you and I know what's going to fulfill you and I know what makes you the most happy and I know what brings you the most peace. And when you run to other gods and you distort me and try to worship me as something that I'm not, what I know is that it is going to rock your world That I am jealous for your love. Just think about what kind of husband I would be if I didn't care if my wife came to me one day and said, I'm going to date some other men who have some of the characteristics that you don't have that I wish you had. You know, my first thought would be like, I can't say I blame you, but (laughs) I would be a horrible person if I were not deeply jealous for her love. No, I do not want to share your love with anybody else. I want your love for myself. God, who is great. our earthly love is, is just a dim shadow of the way that he loves us. And he's saying, I am jealous for your love. This is why I give you this commandment to remind you, I want you to know me as I am. And when you find me there, when you see me as I am, it will be devastating to you in some ways, and it'll be more beautiful and more liberating than you ever imagined. So here's the last question that I'll ask how do we love, how do we worship and love this God in the right way? What if instead of remaking God in our image, we were remade into his image? This is what's happening in the story of Scripture. You see, the mystery is that when God first created male and female, he created them in his image. And what that meant is that they were supposed to be representations of his beauty and his glory and his rule. That he actually made Male and female in his image to be put in his creation. But what we know very early in the story is that all of that became shattered when sin and rebellion entered into the world. And we were so badly damaged by the fall that our relationship with God became broken, that there was enmity there. But all, also our image was marred and hardly recognizable And here's the remarkable thing. In the passage that Rob read to us this morning in Colossians, Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You see, in Jesus, the the invisible God has made himself visible. In other words, if you want to know what God is like most deeply, then you have to know Jesus. And what we do know about Jesus We know that he loved us so much that he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. And Paul says, being born in the likeness of man. So the one who was the perfect image of God was born in the likeness of man. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around. But why did he do it? He did it to stand in our place, to redeem the marred and broken image that we have participated in, that we have done to ourselves, that we have done to his world, to be our representative. Because here's the thing, this law does have to be fulfilled. It does. Jesus said He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of God. And everyone trembled because the scribes and the Pharisees were the most righteous people that they had ever seen. But what Jesus meant is that he was one who was going to cloak us in his own righteousness. That he was going to redeem us. That he was going to live the life that we can never fathom living. And then he was going to stand before the judge and take all the punishment that you and I deserve for constantly, constantly this morning, every last one of us worshiping other gods, distorting the image of the true God. And Jesus says, lay it upon my head. So that the, guilt, the guilty verdict is on him And for us, it's not just not guilty. It is that you are now righteous. You are now my beloved. And so when you look at Jesus, you see the exact imprint of God, but you also see the one who restores that image that was broken in us. And so how do we glorify God? Here's the simple good news. Rest in Jesus. Rest in Jesus. That sounds simple. You know it's not. Don't run out the door and say, I've got to fix all this. I've got to make it all right. Start here. Rest in the finished work of Jesus. When you wake up in the morning, in the middle of the day, when you're frustrated, when you go to bed at night, rest in the finished work of Jesus. That is what the law finally drives us to, is to see the beauty of that we can now rest because it has been completely fulfilled for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to believe this, to receive it, to live by it, that as we rest in the finished work of Jesus, um, that what you would actually do in us, and we know this is what you do, is that you start to conform us into his image. And we are, we're ones who begin to delight in the law of the Lord, and we meditate on it day and night, and we become like trees whose roots go way deep and who are nourished by streams of water so that when the accusing voices Echo in our ears that the voice of Jesus that says, It is finished, is far greater and far louder. Father, would you cause that to be true again and again, day in and day out, as we hear this good news of Jesus proclaimed to us this morning, but also that we would proclaim it to one another and to ourselves throughout this coming week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.